Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. It's 40 years since arguably the most perilous and pivotal moment of the Falklands War, the amphibious landings that delivered thousands of British troops who went on to retake the islands in six weeks. We found out either side so that all four landcraft landed together and we'd lowered the ramp and nobody moved. And the, the Marines shouted, down ramp, out troops! And the Paris hadn't the slightest idea what we were talking about. Around half of Britain's current population were not yet born. So we will look back at those events from two very different perspectives. While the landings were a military triumph, they still cost more than 20 British lives that day. We'll hear from the man who gave the abandoned ship order on HMS Ardent before she sank. It was quite clear to me that we couldn't save the ship without massive assistance. And I didn't want to lose any more of my men. I already knew I'd lost a number of my men. And so, very reluctantly, I made that decision. How devastating is it to have to make that decision? Uh, very, very devastating, I have to say. Ukraine's fight against invasion of its land has now been going on for 12 weeks. President Putin is reported to have taken personal charge of some of Russia's tactical battlefield decisions. We'll assess the possible impact of that. What the lessons of the 20th century teach us is that when war is so centralised and under the command of just one leader, actually they are rarely successful. At the end of the day, I think it's Putin who carries all the responsibility for this and is micromanaging it. Exactly 40 years ago, thousands of British soldiers and Royal Marines were about to launch a massive land assault to repel an invading force. The land campaign of the Falklands War began on the 21st of May 1982, when Operation Sutton delivered the troops and tons of equipment in daring amphibious landings. The landing was at midnight. The first two waves started outside in Falklands Sound and went in through the, the straits in, 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 into San Carlos itself. And then the third wave, we took the ships in. They, and then you started landing everything, the big heavy stuff. Major General Julian Thompson, then a brigadier, was leading three commando brigades' mission to reclaim the Falklands. But much of the plan had been drawn up several years earlier by Major Ewan Southby-Talia when he was stationed on the islands. He helped execute his own plan from one of the landing craft. The Marines shouted, down ramp, out troops! And the Paris hadn't the slightest idea what we were talking about. <laughs> and um, anyway, somebody in the... In the forward end of the land across shouted, Paris, go! And I think is what they shot in an aeroplane when you jump out. Well, they all rushed ashore, happy as sandboys. When they reached land, the Marines in Paris found they were able to push on with almost no enemy resistance. Their biggest immediate challenge was the terrain and climate. It's like Dartmoor, Brecon, Otterburn, all thrown into one. It was cold, wet and windy. <laughs> Brutal. You're just cold to your bone, colder than I've ever been. Then there were no roads, and you couldn't drive a wheeled vehicle off the beach. You couldn't, it wouldn't go anywhere. So one of my jobs was to prevent them wasting time going to places which I knew were non-starters. I was wearing jungle lightweights, which sounds ridiculous given that I was in the South Atlantic, but underneath those I was wearing long johns or ladies' tights. We'd cut up our uh, NBC bags and we're using them like a day sack to carry spare ammunition and stuff. We were wet from the time that we got off the boat uh, and we, we didn't get dry, I don't think, until we got to Port Stanley some six weeks later. Operation Sutton successfully landed more than 4,000 British troops on East Falkland, but it was not without cost. 
It was when we'd started the third phase of landing the, the, the guns and stores from the ships that the air attacks started just a, an hour after dawn. For a whole day, we were under air attack. The Argentine attacks targeted ships and aircraft. Two gazelle helicopters were shot down, claiming three lives. A further 22 men died when HMS Ardent was hit by bombs from three waves of jets. The Royal Navy frigate was captained by Commander Alan West, who 20 years later became First Sea Lord and is now known as Admiral Lord West. We steamed in a very close tight formation through the night before and the weather was absolutely claggy and misty and you really couldn't see any distance at all which was lovely and we hoped it would stay like that on the 21st and then the day dawned absolutely bright and we knew we knew we were in for trouble the thing i'd briefed my ship's company was that the biggest threat to us in the waters there were going to be uh, argentinian fast uh, fighter ground attack aircraft and with such a clear day, it couldn't have been better conditions for them to conduct an attack. So we, we sort of started engaging Goose Green, firing our, our gun. We destroyed five Pucara aircraft on the airfield. We destroyed most of a napalm dump, which is an illegal weapon, of course, but would have been awful if it had been dropped on our troops. And we enabled the special forces to withdraw, even though they were under pressure from what was a larger number of Argentinians in Goose Green than people considered. And... Uh, and that was the start of the day, and then the air raid started. And when you were first attacked, what happened? What was the first you knew of it? Uh, the first attack we, was by uh, an A-4 uh, that came in and dropped, uh, dropped a bomb, which bounced and went over the top of the ship, and he went so close to the t mast that he knocked my target indication radar off kilter, and someone had to go up the mast to try and fix it after that. And then... It, I'd finished my task of bombarding and I was uh, told by the Commodore to move into the centre of um, Falkland Sound um, to split up air raids coming from the south and we were then attacked by numerous aircraft, Mirages and A4s over the period of the day um, and hit by a number of bombs and then finally by, just as it was getting dark, um, the ship had lost all power and steerage way i dropped an anchor so as not to go ground um uh, i had major fires on board i as i said lost all power i was sinking by the stern uh, and a, there was a, a very high likelihood that the magazine would explode and i made the reluctantly made the decision to abandon ship what was it that made you realize that that was your only reasonable option left i was briefed by i got my remaining heads of department together one had been killed already and uh, it was quite clear we had no power. It was therefore impossible to fight the fire properly. There was a real danger of explosion. I'd lost uh, my CCAT missile system. He'd blown up in the air. The CCAT aimer was actually injured on the line, injured on the bridge, and uh, the, uh, it landed on the flight deck, killing, killing one of my officers there. The only guns I had left by then were 20mm Ehrlichans and, uh, and GPMG. And it was quite clear to me that as a fighting unit, uh, we didn't really exist without huge amounts of work. We couldn't save the ship without massive assistance. And I didn't want to lose any more of my men. I already knew I'd lost a number of my men. Um, and although I love my ship, I, I also, you know, love my people. And so very reluctantly, I made that decision. How devastating is it to have to make that decision? Uh, very, very devastating, I have to say. Um, and uh, you know it, uh, it it 
it sort of tortured me uh, for a period. I, I, it's interesting. I think this issue of effect of action and trauma on people was not really understood. It certainly wasn't understood after the First and Second World War, and it was just beginning vaguely to be understood around the time of the Falklands. But I remember saying to my wife that um, I thought I'd got over this jolly well, and she said this was some time later. And she said, you were very different for about three years. And certainly for a couple of years, quite often I'd have a nightmare um, in which uh, really the nightmare was in, you know, making the decision, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? Would this have saved more lives? Would this have done this to the ship? And I had those very, very regularly indeed. And, uh, and normally now they don't happen at all. But interestingly, actually I had one last night for the first time for ages. I think because there's been a lot of, uh, stuff about the 40th anniversary and uh, mm. it just brings it up deep down in your mind and as I say most people are able to get over this but some people can't and they need help that's the thing. Do, do you think you suffered from PTSD then? I, I wouldn't claim that it was PTSD I'm just saying it had an impact on me. And when you look back now how do you feel about it now that you know what that sacrifice achieved? Well I'm very very proud of my ship and my and my people we have a reunion every year um, we were very, very close. Um, I think they performed remarkably. They were very, very young. The average age was 23. Um, for all of them, apart from me, it was the first time in action. None of them had been in action before. Um, and I think they performed very well. And what the ships did was remarkable. We landed the amphibious forces, 5,000 ashore, 5,000 tons of equipment, guns, ammunition, without loss, which then, once they were ashore like that, there was no, we knew we were going to win then. We basically were, it wasn't just to do with keeping the Falkland Islands, it was standing up to a dictatorship that is a bully and it's so red redolent actually of what's happening today in the Ukraine. Admiral Lord West, well, let's get to quite different perspectives on the Falklands landings. For BFBS presenter Ben Coley, it all happened long before he was born, but it's a story he's been researching and sharing in a new BFBS podcast series. And Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark has studied those events many times over the last four decades. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, for those of us old enough to remember it, the Falklands War was huge in the very moment, but also over quickly done and dusted. Actually, how big a moment in history are those Falklands landings? The, the, the general view is that it mattered hugely to Britain and Argentina, um, but it didn't have any great strategic significance beyond that. And that's more or less true, but with some caveats, I think. The point is it, it was it was hugely important to Britain's confidence uh, as a country, not just as a military. What we saw in the Falklands was Britain, British forces doing what they do best which is actually performing way above themselves, uh, beating a, an enemy that outnumbered them 8,000 miles away. That was astonishing. And it, but apart from that confidence, it actually gave the Europeans more confidence, I think, in general, that, that Europe was prepared to, uh, at least somebody in Europe, was prepared to stand up to dictatorship. And it did have a, quite a big effect on Britain's relations with the United States, the relationship between Mrs. Thatcher and uh, President Reagan, which did become pretty important later on and, and laid the foundations for uh, the relationship with Russia, Gorbachev and Glasnost. So I think indirectly, the Falkland, Falklands wasn't just just a, a, a local British success, it did have some ripple effects on broader strategic issues. And Ben, did you think you understood it before all of this, or was it something in the distant past that hadn't really made any impact on you? Before I went out to the Falkland Islands, I'd heard of the Falklands conflict, and I understood a little bit of background behind it. 
But really, I knew next to nothing about it. It wasn't until I knew that I was going to the Falklands. It wasn't until I got off the plane and got out there, got chatting to people, met Commodores, met some people who had actually been there themselves. It wasn't until then that I really started to grasp it and meeting some of the locals and seeing how it had impacted their lives, the lives of their families. That's when I really kind of got hold of what it was that happened. But no, you're right. Like before I went, before I went down there, I was totally naive to it and I really knew nothing about it at all. And then hearing the first-hand stories from veterans and then sharing them in your new podcast, what's that been like as a way to learn the detailed story of the Falklands War? Oh, it's been vital because I think perhaps I thought it was kind of quite a simple thing that happened. We went down, we claimed it back. Um, but hearing the first-hand struggles and the strategic obstacles that they had to overcome and also hearing the really harrowing stories of people that were injured um people that's lives were changed forever it definitely made it very clear to me that the argentinians really did put up a fight and it was really really difficult for our task force that went down there and uh, michael i wonder if there's any contrast between what you thought about it at the time and what we can see now with 40 years of hand- hindsight Yes, I've gone in a sort of circle about this in a way. At the time, I was struck by how surreal it felt, how much there in 1982, it felt like something out of the Second World War. I remember saying to my wife at one point, I heard the news, I said, the Sheffield's gone down. Mm. And that was astonishing. The Sheffield's gone down. It sounded like something out of the Second War. And I remember Bob Fox, I mean, but you know, Bob Fox went in at San Carlos Water. And I remember his commentary, which we got recorded some days later. He said, uh, right, the ramp has gone down. We're now walking through the, the water. We're in the surf. No firing yet. We're all, we're all moving forward. Now I'm on land. Now we're on, we're on the Falklands. And it was astonishing. And in the years since then, I've thought to myself, gosh, that really was a throwback to the Second World War. Warfare has moved on. It's not like that anymore. But of course, here we are in the Ukraine crisis, looking at a Ukrainian war. And it reminds us, I think, that these things do go in circles. And though the character of war changes with technology, the nature of warfare doesn't change all that much. It still comes down to flesh and blood and imagination. And Ben, what to you has stood out most as you learned the Falkland story in such detail for this podcast? I think the one thing that's really jumped out at me is even on the journey south, some of them didn't even really think that a conflict would even play out. So many of them thought, oh, we're just going down as a bit of a bit of a mediator. We're going down to kind of be more of a deterrence. And it wasn't until the sinking of the Belgrano and HMS Sheffield that it became real because I can't imagine having that reality set in of, oh, we are heading into a full-on conflict. And it's that reality of people will inevitably lose their lives. That's kind of stuck with me a little bit, I'd say. Ben Coley, really good to speak to you. Thank you very much. And the first two episodes of Falklands 82, Stories from the South Atlantic, are online now at bfbs.com slash podcasts or download wherever you get your podcasts. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. 
President Vladimir Putin has taken personal charge of some key tactical decisions in Ukraine. Or to put it another way, he is micromanaging the war. This is according to an unnamed Western military source who says the president and his top military officer are taking decisions that would normally be left to a brigadier or colonel. We'll assess what's going on in the Kremlin in a moment. But let's briefly return to Admiral Lord West, who's been on both sides of this equation. After his time as First Sea Lord, he served as Security Minister. What I think is interesting, when uh, heads of state start taking decisions, um, they tend to lose. This happened, Hitler started doing this in the last war, uh, and they very firmly lost. Stalin did it initially, but then he realised uh, that he wasn't getting aware, and Zhukov, the, the general, took over, and, and, the, and the Red Army in 1945, of course, won. Um, I think the fact Putin's doing it is a sign of him realising it was a mistake, not trusting his uh, military. The military won't like that, and uh, you know this will cause problems, I think. Um, and I think he will make mistakes as well. He's not a military man. He might think he is. He probably thinks he's very clever. But I don't think he, him, Putin, taking control will make things better. If anything, they'll make it worse. Mm-hmm. And did you ever experience political micromanaging? Yes, I, I, I did come across uh, people trying to, in, in the intelligence field, because I, as well as doing operations and serving at sea a lot, I also for defence intelligence, I was director of naval intelligence, there was a tendency sometimes for politicians to want the intelligence to say what they wanted it to say, and one had to be very robust to stop them doing that. So you were a man who always told the truth, unlike perhaps some of the people who are informing Vladimir Putin. I would like to think that the advice I always gave to ministers was the true military advice that I believed in, and I think there are dangers if you start making the very top military men Uh, be appointed by uh, politicians because they will start then maybe saying what they think politicians want to hear. Well, joining us now is Judy Dempsey, Editor-in-Chief of the Strategic Europe blog for Carnegie Europe. Uh, Judy, do you think Vladimir Putin is likely to be micromanaging this war? From all accounts, and it's not particularly transparent, yes. Because if he wasn't micromanaging this war, I think there would be quite a bit of resistance from the top brass of the military and the general staff. So at the end of the day, I think it's Putin who carries all the responsibility for this and is micromanaging it. And what does the 20th century tell us about leaders who get very hands-on with wars? People typically look at Hitler in World War II, Lyndon B. Johnson with Vietnam, both ultimately lost. But can we actually read anything into it? When it comes to war, I think by nature, it has to be highly centralised. And this means that for a centralised war machine to win or indeed to lose, it's got to be led by one person, a leader, clearly maybe a bit of delegating as well. But I think what the lessons of of the 20th century teach us is that when war is so centralised and under the command of just one leader, actually they are rarely successful at the end of the day they run out of support or they run out of a kind of feedback. And this is the very interesting thing, as far as we know about President Putin, that because of the authoritarian structure now, feedback is very limited. So therefore, knowing what's on the ground, knowing the conditions, knowing the kind of trouble his military might be in, if it percolates through to him, perhaps it's blocked along the way or else he just doesn't want to know. If we accept then that he is micromanaging this war, What effect do you think it will have on how it develops? 
it's not developing very well. I think we have to consider what's going to happen to Russian society itself. And very, very, very slowly, there are cracks taking place. We saw this uh, a few nights ago on the Russian state television talk show. A former state security officer who's now in retirement, but he's a military analyst, just said the Ukrainians are better trained, they're better equipped, morale is higher. Uh, Russians are living in a bubble. They're not questioning what they're being told. So there, there are certain cracks. Micromanagement can only go so far. Even, even if you're running a business, it can only go so far at one stage, you'll have to have some kind of feedback or the cracks will emerge. Judy Dempsey from Carnegie Europe. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, can you see anything in what's happening on the ground that might indicate whether Vladimir Putin is or isn't micromanaging this war? Uh, well, no, we don't really see any difference in the way the Russians are operating on the ground. I mean, D uh, General Dvornikov has been put in charge of the whole operation, which wasn't the case in the, at the beginning. I mean, there was no overall commander, although they were operating across three different theatres within Ukraine. But still, you see, the tactical issues, tactical problems that the Russians are having don't look any different. They're still not integrating their forces very well because you know, the soldiers can only do what they're trained for. You can't, they can't, in the middle of the war, start doing things that they didn't train for, not very effectively. And so although we see a bit more efficiency, we don't see any, anything fundamentally different. And Putin and Gerasimov being seen in, in, in Moscow, as it were, directing the war, I, I suspect was more uh, an attempt to reassure the Russian population who seem to be getting a bit restive now about the way this is all going to show that they're in charge that they're in control as if that makes it all right but of course mm. Putin as we said I mean he's not he's, he's got no military background no military training he was a, a mid-ranking KGB officer there's no reason why he ought to why he would have any real military experience and I don't think there's any any indication of improvement on the, what the Russians are doing on the ground. So this idea that Vladimir Putin is getting very hands-on has been widely reported in the UK as a tone of, of a bad idea. Um, could that be wrong? I mean, you say he has no military experience or understanding, mm. or, or, or actually does he have some kind of hidden talents that we don't know about? <laughs> well, we, we've yet to see them, <laughs> if that's the case. I mean, the thing is that, that good leaders, sensible leaders, keep to the strategic level. Michael, stay with us. Now, Sweden has joined Finland in renouncing its neutral status and applying to join NATO, both citing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's no surprise that almost all NATO members want to welcome these two countries into the alliance as quickly as possible, except for Turkey, which is threatening to block the new joiners, accusing them of supporting Kurdish terrorists. Vladimir Putin said Sweden and Finland joining poses no immediate threat to Russia, but there was also another deliberately vague warning. The expansion of military infrastructure onto this territory, he said, will of course give rise to our reaction in response. But is that what NATO will want to do? Put new bases in Scandinavia? And would President Putin's warning make them think twice? Rose Gottenmuller is a former Deputy Secretary General of NATO. I think that Finland and Sweden are already very mature as uh, military powers. I don't foresee NATO having to put special NATO infrastructure on their territory. Now, NATO troops, of course, will be present for training and exercising already as NATO partners. But in terms of putting permanent infrastructure that would be uh, NATO branded, so to say, I don't foresee that being an issue. 
And Russia has more than once alluded to its nuclear capabilities. Indeed, Russia appeared to move nuclear-capable missiles in the area close to the Finnish border this week. Has this raised the nuclear risk? Russia is constantly uh, moving its nuclear forces around. That's one uh, important facet of the Russian strategic uh, nuclear deterrent and indeed their shorter range nuclear systems as well. They've gone with mobility in order to ensure their survivability. Now that gives them the opportunity also to use those forces for signaling. Uh, it is something that we've watched the Russians do repeatedly. Certainly when they train with their nuclear forces, they are moving them around quite a bit. So um, I think that this is something that we would uh, not be surprised to see. So would you say this is business as usual and the risk hasn't increased? Oh, no, I think that it's not business as usual per se. This is a signal sent during this week when uh, Finland and Sweden have put in their applications for NATO membership. So this is a signal from Moscow. But I just want to say that it's a routine signal, so to say. It's not anything out of the ordinary. And if you were still in post at NATO, what would you be advising right now about handling a future of Sweden and Finland in NATO? I want to stress that it is the NATO member states that are the ones negotiating with the uh, new NATO applicants, so to say. It's not something that is driven by the Secretary General at NATO headquarters, but the Secretary General, I am sure, and if I were still there as his deputy, would be helping to facilitate, to find solutions, to look for ways to work through any issues that have arisen, as there has arisen an issue between Turkey and uh, Sweden and Finland over their membership. So I'm sure that uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg is alert to the issues and is looking for solutions to suggest. But again, it will be uh, Ankara as well as Stockholm and Helsinki that will be leading the way. And on that issue of Turkey threatening to veto Swedish and Finnish membership, do you think that could seriously happen? I think the Turks are tough negotiators. And I was at NATO when uh, the Turks uh, bought the S-400 missile system from the Russians and ended up being shunted out of the F-35 uh, fighter plane program on that account. But Erdogan stood very, very firm in that case. Now he's got a new negotiation going on. He does now want to resolve that. He's trying to get new F-16s from the United States uh, instead of the F-35. So I do think that that's a factor here. Year. He's looking for some advantage in other negotiations, and so I think is taking a bit of a hard line. But I, I do see this as a negotiation, and I don't expect it in the end uh, to cause a final blockage to Finland and Sweden joining. Frankly, at this moment, I can't imagine Turkey standing in the way if Vladimir Putin is saying, ah, I don't really have a concern here. So when do you think Sweden and Finland will actually be in NATO, and how dangerous is the period between now and then? I know there have been concerns about the transition period, and that is the meaning of the steps that Boris Johnson took in the last two weeks to provide uh, UK security guarantees to uh, both Finland and Sweden in this transition period. And I think that was an important and reassuring step for them. NATO member states have pledged to fast track this uh, membership process, but all 30 NATO member states must vote on the membership of these two countries in their own legislatures or parliaments, and that can be a long process. I expect it will take a year. People have been saying it can be done on a fast track in six months. I hope for that, but I think a year is more realistic. Former NATO Deputy Secretary General Rose Gottemuller, uh, Professor Michael Clark, your final thought this week on Ukraine. What to you has been most significant thing about the last seven days in this war? 
I think it's been what Rose Guttermuller was just talking about, um, which is the big picture is emerging. Sweden and Finland are going to join NATO. And I, I'm sure she's absolutely right. It may take longer than people think, but it will certainly happen. And in addition, remember that Switzerland, neutral Switzerland, constitutionally neutral since 1815, the Swiss are now thinking seriously about their relationship with NATO, not probably joining, but um, having a, a relationship of the sort that Sweden and Finland have had for the last 10 years with NATO, much, much closer. And so Switzerland is moving in that direction as well. And what I think we're seeing this week, really, are quite big steps in the sort of unification of different domains in Europe. And so now, if you look at the European Union, only four European Union states are now not in NATO, and that's Ireland, Austria, Malta and Cyprus. Everybody else in the European Union is in NATO. And so I think we can begin to see now the way in which wars drive political change. And the thing I've been most struck by this week is that a new Europe is beginning to form around us really quite quickly. Whether it will be the sort of Europe we want it to be, I don't know. But but this the challenge of Putin's aggression and the fact that we can't live with Russia under Putin as if we can just deal with him as a, a slightly difficult neighbour, but one we can get on with. No, we can't get on with him. And I think Europe has realised that and is reacting accordingly. Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. And my thanks to all of our guests. For next Thursday's BFBS SITREP, we want your questions to put to Professor Michael Clark about the Ukraine war, what's happening on the ground, why, and what it means for us. Whatever you want to know, send us your questions on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP, and Michael will explain all next Thursday. Before then, there's already an extra edition of SITREP Online, our full interview with Admiral Lord West on the sinking of his ship in the Falklands conflict. He shares much more detail of the story, the impact it had on his ship's company and what his wife had to say when he finally got safely home. Again, that's wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. The government has now decided in an exclusive new BFBS podcast that a large task force will sail as soon as preparations are complete. Experience the 1982 Falklands conflict through the eyes of those who were there at the time. This is serious. We started action stations training, gun training. And the people that live and serve there now. Seeing those ships just burning away, that memory will never leave me. Falklands 82. Stories from the South Atlantic. Hear new episodes every Tuesday. Find it at bfbs.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.